welcome to the only show dedicated to a new way of delivering healthcare. This new model has no name, but let's go ahead and call it direct contracting or digital first care. The new way centers on opting out of the games bigs play with their rigged dice, their crooked game board, and their purchased referees. And if you're looking for a future where everyone wins, that's the doc, the consumer, the employer, and with assured amazing outcomes and measurably lower costs that are ranging up to 60%, you're in the right place. I'm Ron Barshop, your host. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the new healthcare economy. The Montana Miracle involves a grandma named Marilyn who has become a folk hero to many, and she's just my personal hero if somebody were to ask me. Her story starts with this fact, that she and our guests today have a fiduciary duty to have economically viable state health care plans when in charge of it. Every self-funded plan leader does, in fact, it's a moral and legal imperative to be viable, very at the basics, right? The state of Montana health care plan for 30,000 employees and retirees was not viable in 2017. In fact, it was $9 million in the hole the day Marilyn Bartlett started her role leading operations of that health care plan. She stepped into a scary plan that not only lost $28 million, but had to borrow $9 million in reserves from the state that year. Today, happily, that number is $112 million positive reserves. In other words, it's contributing to reserves more than, in fact, in the general fund in Montana than any other 10 agencies combined. In fact, her found healthcare dividend is funding more than not only all the other agencies, but any other source of savings, and uh, people are borrowing from it, so she's the new hero of that state. But she's moved on. She's doing consulting now. More than any other single factor, this is what we call the dividend in high-performance plans, a direct contracting or cash pay plan, which you've been hearing about nonstop on this show. So how did she get Montana there? Probably a lot of the strategies we're going to hear about today and maybe some more, but she, first of all, she used reference-based pricing with all Montana hospitals. It turns out that they were charging the state anywhere from 200 to 600% of Medicare. And they found, she found that they, well, they stated, she used reference-based pricing with all Montana hospitals, 220 to 240% of Medicare versus it was as high as 600% sometimes. And in fact, it was all over the board. Sometimes it's infinity. And hospitals told her they will do fine at two times Medicare. And they were super unhappy to lose that cash cow and instead offer a fair market rate, but they did it. Now, remember, no one made any noise for decades because you don't want to poke that alligator because hospitals are major employers in every city, not just in Montana, but all across the nation. And they have immense local pricing power and political power. And second, she did pharmacy benefits. She overhauled them by firing her PBM and saved tens of millions of dollars hiring a new transparent one. Now, if you're an employer liking this story so far, that is actually the easiest low-hanging fruit you'll find is your drug formulary and vendor are more easily cost-reduced than almost anything. It's not without pressure for Maryland because all the big five PBMs who represent 85% of the market are also insurance carriers today. So they own each other. And what they're supposed to be doing is negotiating with the insurance company and negotiating with a pharmaceutical company, and they're negotiating with themselves, it turns out. So we had a guest on our show who showed us the top 50 most popular meds in America cost his customers pennies a pill. Only one migraine med in his top 50 were over a dollar, but 85% were under a dime a pill. 
So drugs don't cost that much. It's the PBMs that have the markups, rebates, and kickbacks that play games, shell games with employers. On-site primary care is also now offered in Montana. So with attentive primary care, often for the first time ever, downstream visits, especially like ER and urgent care visits, and the more important, hospital stays, both in number and in length, start scaling way back. As much as 20 to 60% we have found with employers on this show. And employees with chronic health conditions are finally, finally, finally getting the attention they want and deserve without high deductibles in the way, without the co-pays in the way. So chronic health employees and family members may now represent for a company or an empl a state employer like Montana, 10 to 15% of a plan, but they can easily represent 80% of the overall cost because they're not attended to properly until you get direct on-site care. And then suddenly they are. So free primary care to the rescue, low-cost meds to the rescue, fair pricing at all hospitals to the rescue. She did such an amazing job that Fortune Magazine named her one of the world's 50 greatest leaders because she was not only brave and I think maybe one of the very first in a state to overhaul everything, healthcare for a state. Our guest today has some interesting stories to tell you what she's done for New Jersey. I met Marilyn Bartlett early last year and she's a firecracker. She might be five foot in heels and maybe she's 105 pounds all wet, but she's made of titanium except for her heart. She's one of the smartest ladies I've ever met, but also one of the kindest. And she's streetwise too. And she loves a good fight, especially when she's in the right. The pressure she faced from the entrenched stakeholders were from PDMs, big carriers and hospitals, and those who sit on the local boards, the so-called leading citizens who are respected, high profile and powerful in every city. And they were relentless. It was real lobbying pressure and even social pressure on Maryland. And she told me she still has trouble talking about it because she gets emotional. It was very painful. So let's write a book. And she goes, it's too hard. Now she spreads her story and helps others like today's guests do the same. I asked recently, are you still under pressure, Marilyn? And Marilyn answered in her usual fashion. She said, what the hell can they do to me now? I'm on Medicare. She's now advising in Texas, Colorado, and Maine, and plans are taking her ideas on in North Carolina, Oregon, and a lot more states. And today's guest is of that ilk. She was a mergers and acquisition attorney and found her way as the deputy attorney general and then assistant counsel to Governor Chris Christie in New Jersey and immediately dug into some giant projects and it did exceptional. She not only impressed him, but also the current colorful governor as well and everybody else around them. And she was invited to lead big projects on the treasury pension side. Now she manages seven pension funds pushing 91 billion and health benefits plan for all 820,000 of New Jersey state employees and retirees, but more than just the state employees and retirees, 70% of the school employees are also in the plan and 30% of municipal employees and retirees are also in that pool. So I'll let her share the punchline because I don't want to give it away. The savings projected using the Montana Miracle Strategies, but it's beyond impressive because her own board is half labor unions, half non-labor union. So consensus is, to say this nicely, a tightrope in New Jersey. Chris Deacon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ron. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, certainly, uh, Marilyn leaves some uh, big shoes to fill with her um, legacy in Montana. I, uh, was she the first to go after this this way? I mean, I'm not aware of anybody trying this on a state before her. Um, certainly at the scale um, that she took it on with their, with their employee group. I know that CalPERS had done some uh, dip their toes in reference-based pricing um, with a few procedure types, but um, she was really the first to take this on um, at a state level across procedures at, uh, with hospitals. Okay, you, you yourself have quite a story to tell, Chris, and I would like to know 
not just the punchline just yet, but can you lead up to how you came about reforming your state health plan and what you're doing, what was first, what was second, what's been hardest, what's been easiest, and what have been the challenges? Then I want to get to the punchline of how much you've saved. Um, so we, uh, you know, when I came into this role, um, we were projected to spend um, by, I believe, 2022, over $4.5 billion a year in um, healthcare spending as a state um, for state employees. And, and we've kept that um, projection at, at bay at around $3 billion, um, despite increasing our membership across the board. So when I took over, we had about 780000 um, belly buttons um, in the plan, and currently we have about 820,000. Um, some big, I, I guess, changes that have occurred um, within this administration, this treasurer's office, and under um, my leadership at the health benefits plan um, is some really creative procurement um, with our PBM um, through a reverse auction that has been credited with saving over $1.6 billion over a three-year contract cycle. We've also overseen the growth of our direct primary care medical home um, pilot, um, which is still being studied for, um, for impact and value. Uh, our third party administrator, um, RFP, which ultimately um, has resulted in savings or book savings for the administration in over $200 million a year. And ultimately, you know, that's passed back to members um, through uh, salary increases and reduced premiums. And, and we're looking um, on a path forward towards moving to bundled pricings and centers of excellence approach, approaches across all of our um, lines of business. So those are just a few of the really exciting things that we're doing. I think improving quality of care, reduction in um, cost variation and quality is, is what's going to get us there and continue to reform. And then I think finally, one thing that I want to point out um, that's so important, as you point out, it's all it's a our fiduciary obligation to really pay attention to where these funds are going, and and even more, to me, important when it's taxpayer dollars. But we've engaged a third party medical claims reviewer that's looking at each claim on a, a pre and post pay basis to make sure that our, our third-party administrator and um, you know, the hospitals um, who are being paid pursuant to that contract, um, we're really paying attention to oversight of those dollars and payment integrity. So they're adjudicating claims that are coming in as complications that really aren't complications or have uh, ridiculous facility fees and are <laughs> right. part of the contract and game, all the games that are played. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great example. Like what we've seen, um, one of the concepts that we're running is a site of service. So what's an appropriate site of service for a particular um, case. And, and so if something comes in that was, you know, a, a mild to low grade fever with what should have been perhaps an observation at a very low acuity level, um, if it's being coded as sepsis, you know, that's a problem. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely paying attention and uh, we're finding real money in the process. I have a friend who is a multi CEO of many hospitals. And he said the game now that's afoot is CMS has made it clear. They're not going to audit anything with a COVID code on it. Yeah, so yeah. they're coding everything with COVID. It's just, right. if you're admitted for, you know, a bloody nose, you got a COVID code. Right. And, and I think um, one of the things that we're paying attention to, and we know that it can be a runaway train is, um, you know, COVID testing, right? So we're seeing um, some hospitals and these are, you know, these aren't the out of network providers that have really been unleashed in terms of COVID testing costs, having no 
ceiling pursuant to the CARES Act, but even end network, um, if it's, you know, if you're paying a percentage of a charge and, you know, I always say I'll take a, a fair price over a 99% discount any day. Um, but if you're paying a percentage of charge on a COVID test and there's no limit on what a COVID test can cost, we are seeing in the data, you know, there's in-network hospitals being paid upwards of 600 to 1,000 to in cases $2,000 per COVID test. And there's no limit on when, how many can be performed and how much they can charge for them. Wow. What is your, uh, how, first of all, how long have you been doing these, this new, mm -hmm. uh, well, direct primary care is also part of your offering on your, on your website. I saw that Everside is one of your vendors as well mm -hmm. as our medical and a couple of others. Um, so Everside's been on our show and of course they're doing the state of Colorado also. Right. Um, are they, is it too early to tell if they're bringing down ER visits, bringing down hospital visits, bringing shorter hospital stays because of the primary care intensive focus? Yeah, our, our early indications and sort of uh, risk adjusted analysis is showing that we are reducing costs. One of the challenges with our direct primary care medical home um, design that we're looking to reform is um, our plan design structure. So we have um, zero cost share for all direct primary care medical homes that folks can be a part of, um, but we don't have any way of sort of controlling leakage. So, you know, we want people to use good primary care as primary care, not as an urgent care center. Um, and we want folks to really treat that as their medical home, you know, and that hence the name and, and allow that primary care physician to really be their quarterback for all care. We do find that when members actually, you know, um, are uh, experience, experiencing the direct primary care medical home, they're very happy with it. And they're really thrilled that this type of care can exist in today's marketplace. Um, so, you know, for us, it's a matter of engagement um, and trying to get more people to use those locations. But yes, um, early results are looking very promising and we hope to leverage those primary care medical homes to really control the um, downstream costs um, when we roll out our centers of excellence and bundled pricing models. Because I think we all, you know, the value in good primary care is not only, you know, good, good health outcomes, but that controlling that downstream cost when somebody needs to encounter a specialist um, down the road. So the largest school district in Texas was telling their direct primary care provider in Houston, um, please, you know, don't tell me that it's free. I can't believe I can go on a Sunday. I can call 24 seven, a doctor, come on. So right. the engagement is really not as much, let's get you in and do an evaluation or do a well woman exam as much as believing that it's mm -hmm. free. Yeah, no, the educational component, like what is direct primary care? You know, I, I guarantee you if you ask 95% of people, you know, they, they wouldn't know what direct primary care means. I even have spoken with, you know, some physicians who struggle to, because we all talk about, um, they're very, one of the, one of the areas that this um, industry is really challenged with is consistent de definitions and whether that's, what is the definition of engagement? What is the definition of value? What is the definition of value-based? What is the definition of care transformation? We talk in these very sort of like, um, uh, you know, ivory tower terms, terms. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, my favorite, social determinants of health. Like, give me something to take action on, right? right. And and I think translating that to um, to to our members is a, a high task, but one that is worth doing. Is it so? So most chronic condition employees are dying to have no copay, no deductible access to doctor. 
I can't believe it's true. Right. But is it too early to tell if the numbers are going down in your favor because they're engaged now? Yeah, no, I think um, we've, uh, especially amongst our um, population with comorbidities, the direct primary care model is just such, um, it has been really successful. Um, we see the engagement um, with those folks, their adherence to medications, reduction in ER visits. Um, so yeah, we are, we are seeing um, really great results um, and we're in the process of uh, you know, when when I took over, the reporting wasn't standardized amongst our vendors. So we had uh, uh, our health, which has just been purchased by Everside, and that Everside was previous Paladina. Um, so our reporting didn't really lend itself to um, uh, a standardized measurement across our vendors. We now have um, Sanitas as well. Um, so I think now that we've gotten to a place where we're more mature in the program, we'll be able to do a really robust um, analysis and see where we can improve. I think certainly we have enough under our belts to show that this is working. And um, at this point, we're just looking to see how can we scale it and scale it uh, you know, intelligently. So I'm gonna assume out of 820,000 employees and retirees that they have an option. They can choose DPC or they can stick with the HMO slash PPO slash fill in the blank plan. Are they, um, are, what percentage of those 820,000 are migrating towards the free plan versus the high deductible or high copay plan? So our plan design is actually, it's, it's almost a layer on, right? So all of our members that are in the PPO have the option to have the DPC that they go to, um, in which case they'll have zero cost share. One of the issues that you know is consistently challenging for us to get people to engage in some of these really smart programs is they're starting from an already very generous plan. Like the actuarial value of our PPO plan is 97%, 97.5%. So you know, to get members to say, all right, I'm going to engage with a DPC for a zero copay versus go to um, you know, an urgent care for $15 copay. Um, it's really an, it's a, it's a labor of education to get folks to understand the value of that primary care relationship um, for their own health and well-being. Yeah, it's a little late when they show up at the urgent care and show their card. If you didn't call your third-party administrator, they would have told you to go to DPC instead. It would have been free. Well, you, yeah, I mean, that would take a, a tremendous amount of um, partnership um, from, you know, the systems themselves and certainly from our TPA. But, um, you know, I, I don't know that their interests are necessarily financially aligned with making the most out of the DPC program. Uh, not to sound cynical, but... Um, you know, the, what are the roadblocks? Yeah, I mean, the DPC program, right? It, it, when you're keeping money out of hospitals and out of ERs and, and in good primary care, which we've devalued as an industry over the last several decades, um, it is disruptive. It's good disruptive, don't get me wrong, but you know, there are those on the other side of the table that stand to lose when money is taken out of those systems. So do you have any data yet, Chris, on either retention or recruitment? Is this helping you keep the best and the brightest and recruit more now that you have these options available? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think our state health benefits program and the SEHBP, that's the school employee health benefits program, um, that is absolutely one of the reasons we um, are able to uh, retain the talent that we do in the state. I mean, all public sector is somewhat challenged as far as, you know, salary scales, et cetera, and certainly with the cost of living in New Jersey. But um, our health benefits package really is, you know, second to none. Um, it's our job to, uh, you know, protect the sustainability of that level of coverage, um, you know, because we're able to offer, again, you know, Cadillac plus plus 98%, 97% actuarial value benefits. Um, our members pay by and large based on a percentage of their salary and not premium. Um, so yeah, it's absolutely um, uh, something that you know people look at um, to when they when they're considering coming to working for the state or local governments or school districts. Well, you're on the Eastern Seaboard. A lot of people migrate from other states to come work in New Jersey and vice versa because it's kind of fluid over there. Right. Um, so let's talk about centers of excellence, Walmart added centers of excellence and uh, direct care to their model about two years ago, 2019. And they're saving well over a billion a year. They just decided to plow a quarter of that back into free college tuition and books for any Walmart employee, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. um, it's a nice way to spend the dividend. Your centers of excellence, not every listener understands what a center of excellence means. And can you explain that if you pick one versus not, what does that mean for the employee? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, as centers of excellence, I think you you recognize your savings in two ways, right? Number one, if let's use spinal surgery as an example. Um, I use that example a lot because my members experience spinal surgery, spinal fusion surgery, 16% more than um, the commercial book of business um, for our Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield, who's our TPA. And why is that, right? So we have a very generous plan um, and our members go wherever they want, whenever they want. Um, and if they call and they say, my back is hurting, they're shipped off to somebody that can, you know, perhaps cut them open. A centers of excellence approach achieves results in two ways. Number one, my members going to be incentivized to go to go to the best of the best when it comes to spinal surgery, which, you know, I don't know if you know this, my, my friend Al Lewis likes to open with this one, but, you know, the leading cause of spinal surgery is a failed spinal surgery. And so the importance of getting to a good doctor that performs these surgeries, not just a good doctor, but a good system, right, that is willing to engage in risk-based contracting and bundled pricing is so important in the first instance. So getting to the right provider if you, in fact, need a spinal fusion surgery, right? So that's the second piece. One of the reasons that Walmart and Lowe's have been so successful in their centers of excellence approach is because, um, you know, 40% of the time, the member didn't need that MSK surgery intervention, surgical intervention. So it's not only getting to the right place when you need the surgery, but really evaluating if, you know, surgery is the right path forward for you in the first instance. Um, so it's about smart incentives. It's about educating our members that it's, you know, it's about quality and that not all facilities and surgeons are created equally. Um, you know, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's an educational challenge, but I think that um, when you approach it from a quality perspective, as opposed to purely cost savings for state, that's how we really move the needle with our um, employees and our members. We had, we had a guest, Catherine Jacobs and Raymond wrote the book on spinal surgery and okay. back surgery. 
and it's called Crooked. It's a great listen if you like Audible, but um, she's a New York Times reporter, and it's really the authoritative kind of Bible. Mm-hmm. But she said that 85% of orthopedists will not do a spinal fusion because uh, they know how un- unreliable and unremarkable the result is versus uh, working it out with chiropractor, physical therapy, exercise. Right. Um, all right. So I got some big, giant questions now that are 10,000 feet uh, questions. You inherited a $74 billion underfunded pension plan. 58% is inherited by, as, uh, the, is what the Treasury Department says. That's not something that you can't fix without political will. Can you use any of the savings that I counted $2 billion when you did the mm-hmm. math here um, to help with the pension side of your job description? Um, so to date, the, the health benefits side of the house hasn't, um, hasn't really mixed in terms of you know, offsetting pension. Um, I would say we, for the first year in many years, we made a full pension contribution um, this year. Um, but I think, I think there's all, right, like money is fungible, right? If we're able to put the state health benefits plan and our retiree benefits on a path to sustainability, inevitably that leads to um, you know, freeing up funds for some smart things like making a full pension payment. I would also add that for our local districts um, that choose to participate in the SHBP and SEHBP, we essentially act as a carrier, right? So we bill them for premiums. They and we're we're self-funded, but um, it's uh, you know this year is a really good example of taxpayer relief and what you know what those districts can do with those funds. The school employee health benefits program had been on a path to, uh, you know, a really dire path. And um, we were able to bring rates down, control costs. We went from, you know, having only 30 districts, uh, I'm sorry, 30% of school districts in the state to now over 40% of school districts. And that number is growing because folks are looking at what we're doing and we've had negative rate action. We just approved negative rate action to the tune of 8% for our actives this year. And not only are we giving negative rate action and substantial negative rate action, but for the first time in, you know, certainly recent history, the school employee health benefits program is giving a premium holiday to all of our participating districts. And that's one month of premiums, right, that that employer would otherwise be giving to the state for their health benefits costs. They're now going to be able, you know, in a time when you know, COVID costs and all the unexpected expenses that arise from COVID. And um, we know that in New Jersey, our tax, you know, our tax burden is quite high, especially because of the quality of the schools. Those districts are going to be able to take, you know, those funds and do with them, uh, you know, that taxpayer relief and and use them um, for their students and for their tax base. Um, So that's the kind of, you know, that's, that's what can happen when you do really smart things. Um, so we're really excited about that. And, and absolutely, like I said, money's fungible. When we can protect the sustainability of our benefits, um, it, just, it does benefit everybody. And whether that's the pension side of the house or a taxpayer base, um, it's all good stuff. So now that you're sort of a statewide hero, are all the politicians looking at you and saying, um, I need some money for my pet project? Are the politicians basically the piranha that are in a feeding frenzy. I know you can't use these words because yeah. you gotta make them happy. You know what? Are they go are they hungry to spend your money that you found? No, no. You know what? I I've um 
I would say, you know, I haven't flown under the radar when it comes to um, other leaders in this, you know, you know, in the public sector space um, that do what I do and my peers and certainly, you know, some of the the evangelists that, you know, on LinkedIn who are looking out for that fiduciary obligation and and doing smart things and making sure that we're pushing the envelope. I would say internally within the state, you know, and this, you know, this isn't a, a one person show. This has been in collaboration with the stakeholder partners. Um, but there's been, you know, sort of a benefit to flying a bit under the radar because when you're taking that much money out of a system that has sort of had it on a drip for the last, you know, and had an expectation that that cost growth would continue to rise, sometimes you don't want to poke that bear. And, and so we've been somewhat um, stealth and smart about what we're doing. But I would say, you know, as you spoke about with Maryland, right? Like a lot of these hospitals are the largest employer in their location. In New Jersey, they, you know, there was just a bill passed that um, now has essentially um, put in statute, um, carved out their nonprofit status in exchange for, um, you know, payments in lieu of taxes for these nonprofit systems. And that locals are getting, um, you know, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield is one of the largest employers in the state of New Jersey. When you start to disrupt these things, sometimes it can get politically uncomfortable. But that's why Marilyn and I are, um, I consider her a mentor and I enjoy following her, her footsteps of being somewhat disruptive, you know, because it's necessary. And yeah, to your point, I always come back to that fiduciary obligation that I take very, very seriously. What other states are following your and Maryland's lead in the country right now that are actually not talking but doing something about this? So I would say um, uh, North Carolina is doing trying to do some really interesting things. That being said, I know that they have a tremendous amount of challenges given their hospitals' um, political clout and lobbying dollars, and certainly their blues organization um, as well. But I think they have a strong advocate in their treasurer's office and certainly with Dee Jones, who oversees my, as my peer um, their state health benefits. Um, Kentucky is doing some really interesting things. West Virginia, um, Virginia, Nevada did a lot of really great stuff on their plan on the um, on the uh, the drug side, the prescription side. I think we're all challenged in sort of doing something as robust as Maryland, you know, she had 37,000 members in her, her health plan in a state like Montana, that's obviously very significant. Um, but when you're talking about 820,000 members, probably 700,000 of whom live in the state of New Jersey, um, when you move uh, that, when you do something with that plan, you move markets. And um, so it's both empowering because you have a tremendous amount of sort of what you would think would be a tremendous amount of power and negotiation behind you, but it's also challenging because you can move markets and, and be disruptive when you do something with a plan that big. So are you talking to these other folks in your position around the country about moving, making this move? Yeah. Oh, I love talking to my peers. I, I, I find those conversations to be some of the most valuable and um, meaningful um, in my role, you know, because we learn something from each other. Every time we talk, we deal with similar players and there's just an honesty there. Um, and, you know, I say that 
the drum that I'm beating most right now with my peers is um, financial integrity and oversight, um, making sure that you know and you're asking the smart questions. Um, you know, and they're not complicated questions. What is your claims processing system? What are your claims oversight? Like, do you, are you paying reasonable um, amounts for your claims? You know, to, to Marilyn's point about some of these cases paying, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars over a charged amount or an allowed amount. Like, is that, is that really you complying with your fiduciary obligation? And what are the tools that you need to engage in that oversight? Because we can do all the what I'll call the bright and shiny object stuff up, up top in terms of, you know, point solutions and digital health and et cetera. But we have to make sure that we're operating on a really firm foundation in terms of oversight and payment integrity with, with those dollars from whether it be the taxpayer, the member, um, or the corporation. So you're in a position now to be under the radar and you don't want to be clicking on LinkedIn and talking about this too much because you're able to continue to do more. What's next on your laundry list, Chris, to tackle to bring the cost down further than $2 billion a year? So I think um, it, what I just spoke about is, um, is where I feel like we need to head as, I'm not going to say an industry, but folks in my position. I think we get... Um, not distracted, but there are a lot of smoke and mirrors in this, this space. And I'm not saying that whether it's DPC or diabetes management carve-outs or specialty PBM carve-outs, like these are all really important things that are going to keep our house in order. That being said, I think that there's a lot of noise right now in digital health and, and COVID and the need for mental health. None of these are unimportant. That being said, in order to make sure that we are providing the best health benefits package we can in a sustainable way moving forward, we have to do what I'll call the, you know, it's not very sexy, but the really hard work of making sure we know where our dollars are being spent. And that means engaging in much more stringent oversight over your TPA and over your claims processing system over what you're paying, you know, if you're a blue, right? If you're contracting with a blue, what a lot of state health plans do because of obviously, some, you know, they're very powerful political um, players in this industry, making sure you know how your claims are getting paid when paid through that blue processing system. Like, again, this isn't the, you know, it's not the super exciting digital tech, you know, venture capital world, but it's very important because it's the foundation upon which this house is built. When I talk to the benefit advisors of larger employers on this show, we have had probably four of the five biggest uh, benefit advisors in this space. Um, they're all saying that the employers, it's not easy work. You have to tackle this as a CEO, as a CFO, you have to be committed to make this happen. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't operate by itself. And, um, uh, and a lot of the big problem they have communicating with CEOs and CFOs and chief people officers as well, is they don't believe this. They believe this is too good to be true, Chris. And I, I want to be respectful of your time. If you could give a message to those C-suite executives that are listening to the show that think this two billion thing is ridiculous, the billion for Walmart is ridiculous, Lowe's is ridiculous. Um, can you speak to that and tell them <laughs> this is not a myth. This is actually real. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, every CEO, every C-suite executive in America needs to treat their health benefits spend like 
anything else they would on their balance sheet. No CFO of any company, much less a Fortune 500, Fortune 100, Fortune 50, right? Number one, none of them are going to give their employee a $40,000 piece of equipment without some sort of manual training, educational piece on how to use it. And that's what we do every day in healthcare. We hand over this huge benefit. We don't tell people how to use it. We don't inform our consumers. So that's one. Two, um, we, it's not a foregone conclusion that that $40,000 premium has to be $40,000. Like we all sort of assume, and I know that there's a lot of work going on into, you know, cost growth benchmarks in states and how do we control the cost of growth. I challenge that premise. I challenge the, I challenge the, the premise that it's going to be how much can we limit growth and we have to, we have to focus on how do we take, how do we start talking about a decrease? Because I'm not willing to, to accept the premise that today we spend 17% of our GDP on healthcare and, and in 10 years, we're going to be satisfied with 26%. I'm not. We have to challenge that premise and we have to treat it again. Every CFO in America needs to treat this um, like any other business cost that they would and manage it and manage it aggressively. I think, you know, how are we messaging that, that GDP, that lost opportunity, right? Like, and whether that's talking to millennials about climate change and what we could do with the money that we're literally spending to build glass palaces. And, you know, I just saw another headline today about a large health system, you know, looking to raise capital to the tune of $2 billion to, to, to um, build more uh, medical space. We're not getting healthier. Our mortality rates are going down. You know, we're we're as a nation, we're not getting we're not getting healthier. We're, we're what are we paying for? If we're paying 17% of our GDP for the best healthcare system in America, show me the results. Show me show me some sort of measurable improvement. And in the absence of that, it, it's not we're not paying for what we're getting, right? I was speaking with um, Stacy Richter the other day, who I'm sure you know, and is just a, a great uh, a great mind in this space. And I use the analogy of, I often hear from people that, but yeah, we have the best healthcare system in America. We have the best drugs and the best treatments and the most advanced this and that. And I said, what you're asking everybody in America to do is essentially pay for a Ferrari for like, you know, 0.1% of the population and everybody else gets stuck with like a 1980 Corolla. Like why is that, is that the outcome we want? Like, do we, or do we want everybody to share in, you know, and I am not a proponent of like, you know, you know, I'm, I'm not speaking politics here. I'm speaking value. Like, what are we getting for what we're spending? And it takes the hard work of, you know, what people like Maryland have done, um, you know, what people in the state of New Jersey are doing. It's disruptive. It's going to be, um, you know, I always say somebody's got to sit on that other side of the table when we're going to take money out of the system. And it's not going to be easy because they're going to have a lobbyist. They're probably going to be a political um, a donor to somebody. Um, but somebody has got to take hold. And I personally think it's the business leaders of America and the CFOs who need to look at that line item and start demanding results just like they do in every other sector of their business.
Well said. Great way to end the show. I have a million more questions for you, but we're going to do this again in a year and check your retention and your recruitment. We're going to talk about engagement. We're going to talk about your chronics and what are the numbers looking like there. So the hospital stays. I'm very interested in the metrics because you need some time under your belt to get all that uh, established. And you and Everside will figure this out, I know, and your Sanitas. So again, thank you, Marilyn. Uh, Marilyn. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Well, I mean, y'all are the same ilk as, like I said, at the top of the show, y'all, y'all come from the same tough metal, titanium, steel, big heart. So you're doing it for all the right reasons. Um, again, thank you so much for being on the show. And if people want to find you, I know you don't really, you know, want a visible profile, but how oh, I'm on, I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Okay, good. So connect with me and uh, we can talk. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ron. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.